0: Let's pray, Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this part of the semester where uh, things get extremely busy, uh, with preparation for exams and finishing off assignments and that sort of thing, Father, we pray that you'd quieten our hearts and quieten our minds to hear your word to us. And Father, we pray that you would speak with clarity uh, to us, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, that we would obey what you say. And Father, we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, I was speaking to a friend recently um, who came up to me and said, Look, can you come and talk to someone? Uh, I've been sharing uh, the gospel with them, uh, with him for uh, often, but the light hasn't come on yet. And so I sat down with this friend and I told this friend that being a Christian was not a matter of being uh, good or a matter of earning things, uh, but rather a matter of accepting a gift, something which God has done on our behalf. And In response to that, he said, Oh, I see. It means that I should try harder. Um, and I thought, no, he, he doesn't get it. The light hasn't come on once again, so I repeated it. Uh, and I made the point that a, the Christian gospel is all about how God accepts us on the basis of the performance and the work of his son. Uh, it's all about his performance, uh, not about my performance. It's all about grace, not about what we do, not about marriage. And immediately, he actually sat back and was shocked. You know, mouth half-opened. And he said, but that can't be right, right. Because that would mean that I could live any way that I pleased. And I realised that something clicked then. Because there was an understanding that we stand before God not on the basis of what we do, not on the basis of, of what we can do, but on the basis of the performance of Jesus. He was quite right. Because the next question which naturally throw, uh, flows is, just, if justification is true then justification surely is a passport to my indulgence. And what we have here in chapter six is Paul anticipating the question, if my relationship with God has all got to do with grace, then why should I worry about my performance? Why should I actually worry about what I do? And it's a complex little chapter, chapter six, uh, it, it, someone mentioned this morning, sort of like a, a Simpsons episode. Uh, you can watch it and you can enjoy it, but then you can go frame by frame and all the little bits that's in it, it it's really quite uh, incredible. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm, I'm going to paint for you the structure and hopefully with all the details, well, you're going to get five days to think about those sort of things at annual conference. So do register and do come along because it's a great time to actually think that through. But let me give, give you the structure. Uh, uh, firstly, uh, Paul actually has a couple of questions. So you see that in verses 1 and verses 15. And and the answer to that, of course, is no. You see that there, don't you? Verse 1, verse 15, what about this? What about that? And then one of the things that Paul gets us to do is to get us to recall knowledge, to recall what we already know. So you see that in verses 3 and verses 16. Do you not know? Don't you guys know about this? And then he goes on, uh, after he talks about that, actually exhorts us to actually do something or not do something. You see that in verses 11 and following and verses 19 and following. And right at the end, to encourage us, to keep us going, we actually get an encouragement in verse 14 and verses 20 to 23. So that's the structure. So whether you, 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 you get all the bits at the end of this talk, remember that structure. Question, recalling knowledge, exhortation, encouragement. And he's going to recall our knowledge about union in the first half and recall our knowledge about freedom in the second half. Well, Paul comes in verse 1 to the ludicrous question, a, a, a ridiculous question. And the question in verse one actually relates back to last week, to chapter five, verse twenty, uh, where Paul actually says there. Now the law came to in, uh, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So greater sin means greater grace. So therefore, if that's the case, chapter six, verse one, uh, why should we not go on sinning? Uh, because the more we sin, the more God's grace is required. So sin actually produces grace. So why not sin? Right. And his definite answer comes in verse 2, by no means. Uh, In the King James Version it says, God forbid. Uh, In another translation, the the J.B. Phillips, it says, what a ghastly thought. Uh, we, we, We can't go on to sin. You've got to be joking. It's ridiculous. Well, why? Why is that? Because he recalls our knowledge. He says, we died to sin through our union with Jesus. We died to sin so that when he died for sin, we died to sin. You see, we change changed environments. All right? Last week we were talking about us changing teams. We're on a different team now. We've moved from the team of Adam to the team of Jesus. And so we've moved from the environment of sin and death to the environment of righteousness and life. And what has changed all that is our union with Jesus. Because he's our captain. We've changed our environments. He's changed environments. Uh, it's an incredible story, if you ever read it, the two-volume biography of Hudson Taylor, uh, when he actually went from England to China. Uh, there'd been other English missionaries in China, but when they had arrived in China, uh, they kept on their top hats, they kept on their suits, their braces, their spats, uh, and they went out and they preached the gospel to the Chinese. And they were generally fruitless and unproductive. And so Hudson Taylor decided that his motto would be that in all things without compromising, that he would become Chinese. And he wrote back to his sister and he said that I realised the first thing was to get rid of the clothing, my English clothing. I had my head shaved and the application of fresh quicklime to one's bald scalp after it's been shaved is no easy thing. And then I allowed my hair down to the back to be plaited into the form of a Chinese pigtail. I put on dark silk clothing and I put sandals on my feet, such clothing that I've never worn before in my life. Now, what happened to Hudson Taylor uh, was that he, he, he actually moved from London to what was then called Peking. Was his change real? His change of environments? His change of environments was real. And similarly, the, the Apostle Paul is reminding us that we've changed environments from the environment of sin and death to the environment of righteousness and life. But the key to that change is our union with Jesus. Union with Christ. Union with Christ is not only to the, the key to our justification of our being declared right with God, but it's also the key to our godly living as well. In Christ, we have a new team leader. We've got a new representative. And that is Lord Jesus Christ. And he represents us. And his experience actually parallels our experience. What's happening to him is happening to us as well. And when you look at the death, when you look at the burial, when you look at the resurrection of Jesus, you say, yes, that's happened to him. But it's happened to me also. You see, in my spiritual experience, because of my union with Jesus, I've moved environments. He has died. I died to sin. He was buried. I was buried. He was raised to new life. I'm raised to new life. And so what Paul is saying here, he's not giving us a a theology of baptism in verses 3 and 4 in in Romans 6. He's saying baptism is an excellent illustration of our union with Jesus. So you go underwater, you're dead to the old environment. You're now buried. You come out of the water and you come up to new life. It shows your union with Jesus. He died, verse 3, we died. He was buried as a seal of death ready for what was to come. The prerequisite of what was to come. Verse 4 He was raised to new life. And baptism, when you look at it Sunday by Sunday, is an excellent reminder of that. Christ's experience and my experience is paralleled. Every time I see someone baptized, it reminds me of my union with Jesus. It recalls the knowledge that we already have. That's the spiritual reality. We're raised with Jesus, we die with Jesus. I actually find it's a great thing to go to weddings. Uh, Every time I hear the vows of the bride and groom uh, together, it it reminds me of the vows that I made. And I think every time I go to a baptism and see a person go under the water and come up, it reminds me vividly of my union with Jesus. And verse 10 tells us that he died to sin. Verse 8 tells us that we died with him, he died, I die with him. And therefore, Paul says in verse 2, we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? His death to sin made sin redundant. He paid the penalty. Sin is defeated. Sin is no longer the dominating feature it once was in our lives. Just as for Hudson Taylor, when he went to China, England is no longer the dominating feature for Hudson Taylor. Chinese culture is a dominating feature for Hudson Taylor. And so where sin was once the dominating feature of your life, Paul is saying, now the dominating feature is sin no longer. Righteousness and life, that's the dominating feature. And so the Apostle says, you cannot, first 2, be in union with Christ and have a careless mm-hmm. attitude to sin. It's far too inconsistent because you've moved environments. Right? Here's my attempt as a non-sports illustration. It, it's like, um, you know, if you're a liberal supporter and, and, and you love John Howard and you love Peter Costello and last month you think, wow, what, what a fantastic budget that, that was. You know, wasn't it typical? They, they can't do any wrong, those two fellows. But I never vote for them. I'm a committed ALP voter. You say, what are you talking about? To say one and then to say the other? They're far too inconsistent. Shall I sin? Paul says it's far too inconsistent. You died. A real transfer environment has taken place because of our union with Jesus and actually goes on to repeat that in verses 5 and 7, 5 to 7. You see, he says there, if you've been united with him in his death, you can be sure that you've been brought to new life as well. Not just you've died to the old, but the reality is that the old sinful, selfish self of yours, that old self, verse 6, has been taken to the cross and hammered there to the cross with Jesus. It's been taken out of gear so that it's no longer the dominating feature of living because it's there on the cross and it's dead. And that means, verse 7, that you're free from the dominion And and, and you're in the new environment in which you now live. A new environment that's now dominated by what it says there, new life. And what's that new life like? In verse 9, it's about length and it's about quality. It's about quantity and it's about quality. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. New life, therefore, is perpetual. Perpetual. You'll never go back to the old realm. You don't go back there. Christ died so that now in the midst of new life. He'll he'll never go through death again. So you need to see that old environment. You're never going to go back to it. Death has no dominion there. And Paul says you can't go back. There's no going back. It's crazy to be thinking of going back. You come from that environment in which you lived, in which you delighted, but you're dead to that now and alive to the new one. And it's a perpetual life. No turning back. It's different. Now, this morning, Sharon had a few cramps at 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, hopefully, it's nothing, nothing great. But, um, but our baby is actually due next Monday. You see, that, that, that kid has been dominated in, in its life so far by placental circulation. And hopefully, next Monday, it's going to start breathing in air. right? Not, not, not by some you know, circulation that depended on the mother. But it's a new environment. And you know, after the first time it vomits and when it poos, I can't say, I don't like this anymore. I want to shove it back in. Come out when you're 18. It just doesn't work. There's no turning back. You've gone from the old to the new. But it's a qualitative thing as well. Look at verse 10. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That's the dominating feature of this environment. It's a life lived to God. And the apostle says, baptism is a good symbol of that. And I think marriage is a good symbol as well. I recently celebrated my um, my wedding anniversary on the 3rd of June. Got the pen to prove it. Um, but when you get married, you're no longer a single person, right? When when you're a single person, when I was a single man, I lived as a single person, just looking after myself. I could be a workaholic, work 24 hours a day, do whatever I like, organise lots and lots of things, right? Be stupid. But now that when I woke up after my wedding day, I was no longer a single person. I was married. The dominating feature that was before, when I was single, was singleness, aloneness. And dominating feature now is companionship, is that marriage relationship. And I can't just live for myself, I need to live considerately with the other person. And that's it. Paul says you change environments, you've moved. The dominating feature was one, now the dominating feature is the other. And you've got to live in that environment. It's not just quantitatively different. It's qualitatively different. And so there in verses 1 to 10 is the theological basis of our godly living. We're justified by faith, yes, but we continue in faith, trusting that God's declaration of us being united with Christ is true. And Christ's death and resurrection removes sin's penalty. And we need to keep on trusting that it removes us from the environment of sin's reign and power, in which sin is a dominating feature. And the reality is, we live a new life in righteousness keep on recognising that now comes the exhortation uh, and what's the significance here? Right? if you actually chase back to, to Romans and you read it through again from chapter 1 verse 1 right through to chapter 6 verse 10 the incredible part of all this is that Paul has not been you will not find from verses 1, 1 to 6, 10, one command he hasn't made one command there's not one imperative they've all been just indicative statements just statements of fact. And for the first time now, in chapter 6, verse 11, the Apostle Paul comes to his first command. And it's not, notice, a command to do anything. Right? What must you do? It's a command to recognize something about yourself. It's a present continuous command, if you know anything about language. He says you must consider yourselves and consider and continue to consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. It's a mind thing the first command relates to how you think and it relates to how you think about yourself make this calculation reckon it make sure you consider it doesn't matter how you feel make this calculation as God reckons you perfect in Christ so now you consider and you count yourself dead to sin and alive to God and that is what the gospel reminds us about we're part of a new team Hudson Taylor moved from England to China I've moved from sin to righteousness because of my union with Christ. The dominion of sin has been brought to an end, and so when I feel like responding like a son of Adam, I say, no, I'm a son of Christ. That's the reality. Martin Luther put it like this. When the devil comes knocking on the door and he says, is Martin Luther in there? I say, no, he's dead, go away. I recognize that I'm dead. Now that recognition actually leads to action in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body because its dominion has been done away with in Jesus. Say no to sin. So get your mind right. That's what you have got to do. Don't let sin reign. And he tells us what not to do in verse 13. This is what you're not to do. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't keep on going in, along in sin as if sin still reigned because the reality is sin doesn't reign. Stop living as an Englishman. This is China. Stop living as a sinner. This is righteousness. But what do you need to do, he says? But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You come to the new realm as diligently as you were dominated by sin. Now be dominated by righteousness. See, one of the great things that the Scriptures always does is he just doesn't say, don't do this. But it's don't do that. Do this instead. One of the things I do quite often, um, each Friday when I work, is actually help people to give up their smoking. And smoking is just one of those terrible habits. If you tell someone to stop smoking, even if you give them all the patches in the world and stuff like that, they often go back to it. And one of the reasons is they're so used to doing something with their hands, having a cigarette in it, and doing the action of smoking. And unless you actually train the other person, not just to get rid of the craving, but to get them to do something with a hand that's different, something positive, then it's really quite incredible and quite difficult to do. And Paul says, not just don't do sin, do righteousness. It was my youth leader, um, youth fellowship leader back when I was in high school, who said to me, Michael, be so busy doing the good that you don't have time thinking or doing the bad. And I think that was great advice. Be so busy doing the good. Be filled with righteousness. But I mean, it all sounds so hard, really, to change like this, doesn't it? But friends, notice the encouragement of verse 14. You've moved from the environment of law and accusation to the environment of grace. Sin shall not be your lord, shall not be your master, it says there. And why won't sin be your master? Well, because you're no longer under law. So when you're under law, it condemns you. When you're under law, it increases your transgressions, if you remember what we've been doing in Romans. But under grace, no, grace teaches you to say no to that which is ungodly and teaches you to live a life of righteousness. Grace motivates you and changes you and liberates you. See, moralists in every age say that the way that we change people is by making more rules. You see that when you drive down Parramatta Road. Road signs everywhere. Bus signs now. No longer say, please give way. It says, give way. When the lights flash, you're supposed to drive at 40 kilometres now. Who does that? (laughs) But you can make all the laws in the world. That's not going to change the inside. What changes you is the gospel, which actually changes you and transforms you from the inside outwards. Not just because of an external thing that happens. I still remember once, this is not scripted, Um, I still remember once when I was driving up uh, the central coast and uh, my little nephew um, was making a real racket uh, in the back seat and so his mum said to him, sit down, sit down. And so Matthew eventually sat down because you know mum was getting pretty fierce and then he said, I hope you know I'm still standing on the inside. (laughs) But it's not like that. This is a change from the inside. The gospel comes, the gospel of grace, of generosity, of forgiveness, of love, says that you're declared right with God. And the motivation and the change transform you from the inside out. You don't change a person by putting new clothes on him. The change is facile. It will not make really make any difference. What you really need is a change from the inside. And if you know the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is your death, if you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that covers all sin then you'll know the changed life that will make you want to offer every part of your life. Well, verse 14 gives rise to a second ludicrous question, a second perverse argument. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? It's similar to verse 1, isn't it? Uh, But it's different. Verse 1 is saying, shall we go on sinning in order that grace might go on increasing? Verse 15 is saying, well, sinning doesn't matter. After all, we're not under law. Uh, There's no longer any condemnation. There's no longer any declaration. Uh, We're now free to do whatever we want to do. We're under generosity and mercy and forgiveness. So that means sin no longer matters. If God loves forgiving sin, that's fine with me. We're a great match because I love sin and he loves forgiving it. It's that careless attitude encouraged by the teaching of justification through faith. Is it encouraged by that? Well, the answer he gives is similar to the one that he gives in verse 1 and 2. He says, by no means... He repeats it, by no means. The reason we are not to walk in sin, according to verse 2, is because of our union with Jesus. Now the reason he gives us from verse 16 and following is that we are no longer to walk in sin because of our freedom. We have been set free from the mastery of sin and we have been set free for righteousness. That's the knowledge that we are to recall now. Verse 16, do you not know That if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You know (laughs) whose whose master a person has by the one they obey. That's what Paul is saying there. Paul says in verse 16, The identity of one's master is determined by the one whom you follow. The master you will emerge as a slave of the true master. By what you do. And so, should I have a careless attitude to sin? No. By having a careless attitude to sin, don't you see that you're putting yourself back under the slavery from which you've been set free? It's incongruous. It's inconsistent with the reality of what's happened to you. It's like Prisoner of the Wars from the Burma Railway Line, the Burma Bridge saying, why, wasn't it good up there. You know, I've got to go back to that disease. And all that tragedy and all that turmoil, it's wonderful. It's craziness to do that, isn't it? Right, It's like prisoners of war, it's like a man from the maximal security section of Goulburn Jail, saying, oh weren't they great, great days back there, wasn't the food wonderful, I'd love to get back. It's incongruous, it's inconsistent. And the apostle says here, if you have a careless attitude about sin, don't you understand, look, you've been united with Jesus in his resurrection. If you have a careless attitude of sin, don't you understand? You've been freed from its mastery. And when you do that which is sin, you're actually saying, Sin's your boss. Look at this section here and notice that there are only two masters. The first master is made mention in verse 16 slaves to sin. Verse 17, you used to be slave to sin. Verse 16, you've been set free from sin. Verse 19, slavery to impurity and ever increasing lawlessness. Verse 20, slaves to sin. Verse 22, you've been set free from sin. So that's fairly clear, isn't it? One master is sin, ever increasing lawlessness and impurity. So what's the other master? We'll look at verse 16 again. Or to obedience. So immediately, when you get the word obedience, you can see that it's in contrast to sin. And you know that it's actually, the contrast is with disobedience. You're either enslaved to sin or to obedience. He goes on, verse 18, slaves to righteousness. Verse 22, and have become slaves of God. Now that this is one of the slaveries in which we're involved. You're either involved in bondage to sin, impurity or lawlessness. Or you're enslaved to obedience, righteousness or God. See, we think so often, don't we? That when we're freed from something, we can act independently. That we can make up our own minds about something. The Bible keeps on reminding us, there's no independence like that. You're always in bondage to someone, to something. And if you're a non-Christian here today, thinking that somehow you can sit back and somehow sit back and think, well, i am just got a neutral, unbiased mind making up a decision about this, that's not what the Bible says. You're either in slavery to sin or in slavery to righteousness. George Matheson, in his hymn, put the truth right when he said, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall a be. See, there's a seeming contradiction. You only find true freedom as you walk in slavery to God. If you're not in relationship with God, then you're enslaved to yourself. Make me a captive, Lord, then I will be free. Because in all of life, I'm under either bondage to myself, serving myself as me as master, or God as my king. Well, how does all this begin? Well, verses 17 and 18 put it. Notice the Apostle Paul actually thanks God. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sins, that my birth, have become obedient from the heart by an act of the will to the standard of teaching, that is the gospel, to which you were committed. So you would think that you would say you wholeheartedly obey the gospel which was entrusted to you. No, no. You were placed in the care of the gospel there. You were in the gospel care when you came to wholeheartedly obey the gospel. And thanks be to God for that wholehearted act of obedience when you came to repent before the Lordship of Jesus. And then verse 18, he tells us how it all began from God's point of view. And having been set free from sin, uh, having and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. It's a supernatural change. You move from the realm of sin into the realm of righteousness. A mastery that was evil and destructive, now to a mastery which is liberating. And you see, each of them actually has its own dynamic, has its own conclusion. Look at verse 19. Notice each mastery has its own dynamic. They're not static. And if you're enslaved to sin, it'll take you on to ever-increasing wickedness and impurity. If you're enslaved to righteousness, it'll take you on to godliness, to sanctification. And I want you to notice this, because in being enslaved to sin is an addictive, habit-forming thing. I don't know whether you've read the story of Jimmy Swaggart, Uh, It's an incredible story really, Uh, a man who began to dabble in pornography uh, and then went on to TV worldwide uh, preaching against pornography and adultery and others. And then he began, in his native Louisiana, uh, he began to visit brothels until he was actually finally caught. And then he came on to a tearful repentance on national TV. He turned his back on it. Everything was okay until he actually started travelling interstate again, by himself, alone, and then he started visiting brothels there. You see, when does sin ever say, enough, I'm satisfied? You see, when did Pol Pot say, enough? Idi Amin say, enough? Hitler, I've got enough. It never does. It's lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. It's an addictive habit-forming drug, a master who's habitual. There's never any contentment in evil. And just as the first ludicrous argument actually led to exhortations and to command, well, so too does the second ludicrous argument lead to commands. That is, the first ludic- ludicrous argument, he says, remember your union with the Lord Jesus. Remember when you work out what you know, therefore, don't let sin reign in your body. Well, now, likewise here, because you realize that you're no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. He too, you must offer yourself as slaves to God. It's the same thing. He's the free offering of slaves. You used to offer your body to impurity. Now offer yourselves to righteousness. The exact reverse of what you need to do. See, the enemies of the gospel actually think that grace will lead to increased sin. That's what Paul's anticipating. That's what a lot of our friends say. when say, well, you don't have to do anything to get right with God. It leads to impurity. That grace will lead to an acceptance of, of sin. I tell you, the gospel of grace goes in the opposite direction. Sin won't reign in your mortal bodies, and you'll offer yourselves to righteousness. It's the exact reverse. It's a strange thing, isn't it? The more we preach and understand forgiveness, the more we'll be committed to mor- moral transformation. Isn't that extraordinary? Because the whole world actually thinks is the exact reverse. Strange thing, isn't it? The world thinks that the more you preach the law, the more you'll be committed to moral transformation. But it's not. The more you preach the law, the more you'll be committed to trespasses. And so the chapter concludes with a set of, another set of encouragements, of outcomes. The benefits, the results of the gift. Paul in stark reality actually shows us the destinations of both these slaveries. Look at verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You can't be a slave to sin and be under control of righteousness you're either using or you're not you're either off or you're on if you're under righteousness you're under righteousness he says and be aware of it secondly notice in verse 21 but the fruit, of, uh, the fruit uh, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed the end of those things is death when you're under the mastery of sin and you look back now you look back at it in shame it's an incredible thing The things that you did then now shame you and would have led to death. So why do you want to go back under there? There's no benefit there. And then he says thirdly in verse twenty two But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. When you look back, when you were slaves to sin, shameful death. But now through Jesus you've been set free and brought under the mastery of righteousness, it leads to sanctification eternal life. Why do you want to go back? It's crazy to go back. The book of Hebrews puts it the difference between shadows and reality. The difference between a picture and a real person. And then comes this great summary, which a lot of us know as a memory verse. For the wages of sin is death. Sin pays a wage. You earn the wage of sin by your own practice. The word he uses is a technical word about a general paying out his soldiers. Sin pays a wage, and the wage is death. But with God, gift, grace, it's unearned. It's a contrary to what you deserve. But the free gift of God to those under the mastery of righteousness is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that life, notice, that last word, is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We so often overlook that, don't we? And Paul won't let us overlook it. We have life because of Jesus. It's in Jesus Christ our Lord we have this gift. In our union with him. And we've been redeemed from the wage which sin would have paid us. Which we deserve to earn. Which we earned. But we now have the gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not just a comma. It's not just a breathing point. Like so often when we pray, we say Lord just as a comma. It's a real thing. It's in union with Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember that. One of the things I love about Steven Spielberg movies is that he I find that he's one of those few directors that actually grabs me from the very first scene, from the very first frame. And you never get bored. Uh, from the very first scene. So a few months ago, uh, we were sitting there watching the telly. And here is this aged man walking through a cemetery. He's alone. But he's not alone, because just behind him is his family, probably. But as he gets closer and closer, he's looking for one headstone. And he stumbles ahead, and he stumbles ahead, and he stumbles ahead. And Spielberg puts the camera right on his face. And he falls on his knee before one of the headstones. And the headstone was that of Captain John H. Miller. And Spielberg takes us back. This is Private Ryan, one of four brothers, Three had been previously killed, and the US Army considers that it's imperative that they get behind enemy lines to get Private Ryan out, so that at least his mother will have one son who actually comes back alive from the war. A unit of eight is sent, headed by Captain John H. Miller, and they go to get Private Ryan. And in the process, six of them are killed, including Captain Miller. But the scene is now on the bridge. Captain Miller, with his dying breath, pulls Private Ryan towards himself and says with his dying breath earn this earn it and then we go back to the cemetery and now we see aged Private Ryan now in his 70s before the headstone of Captain John H. Miller tears streaming down his cheeks and he's saying in a barely audible voice every day I've lived I've never forgotten what you said to me that day on the bridge earn this, earn it and I've tried to live a good life. And he turns around to his wife who has come up near to his shoulder and says, tell me that I'm a good man. And she looks and she doesn't understand. Tell me I'm a good man. She says, you are. It's one of those most moving accounts. I remember hearing Jerry Bridges a few months ago. And he says, first 15 minutes of every day, I remind myself of the gospel. Why? because every day I want to remember what you did for me that day on the cross and what you said there wasn't earn this earn it no no it was this is grace it's for you now live consistently with it your life's been transformed every day I live I want to remember what you did for me that day on the cross full of grace and truth that's the knowledge to recall do you intend to be godly When faced with sin, what do you do? What does the Apostle say about that situation? Two words. In chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, he says, union. In chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, he says, freedom. Remember your union, remember your freedom. Union with Jesus as he died, buried, rose from the the dead. Freedom because of what Jesus has done. Conquering sin, defeating sin on the cross. So walk acknowledging your union and walk acknowledging your freedom. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to the busy part of that uh, term, I guess, uh, with exams looming, Father, it's, it's so easy for us to lose structure and forget to talk to you, forget to read your word, to be selfish and not care about other people. Father, we pray that as we understand grace, as we understand that we are transformed people, that we would live righteous lives, lives lived in glory for you, in service of one another, in service of Christ. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name.